In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about balancing feature development with marketing, the cost of technical debt, and answer more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 386. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I have the plague. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So you were sick all weekend? Yeah. So my my son, my youngest son got sick the last Wednesday, I think it was. And so he was sick Wednesday and Thursday. And we sent him back to school on Friday. And then my wife got sick between Friday and Saturday. And then I got sick between Saturday and Sunday. So it's been a rough week, to say the least. Yeah, that's brutal. Man, being sick just tears you up, you know? It like means you can't get anything done and especially when you're kind of when you don't have vacation time you don't have paid time off and you're trying to drive a business forward it's like every hour is is precious yeah i mean fortunately for us it was kind of over the weekend but still i mean it, we're recording now we don't usually record till thursday but today's monday and uh, you know after this podcast episode i'm probably going to go to bed <laughs> right right yeah and that's you know today we're we're actually continuing kind of a continuation of last week's episode i had picked out several questions last week that you and i were going to go through and answer and we only got through a couple of them because the gdpr conversation you know was so extensive and i and i think that was a good thing i mean i think we went in depth and and gave ideas and feedback but it meant that we had you know, kind of had this this big block of uh, of unanswered questions, and I wanted to keep going with them. Um, we have a few voicemails and some others today, but before we do that, I want to tell you. I know I haven't talked about drip features in a while, but I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about this this upcoming feature. We've been working on it for I'm trying to think. It's got had to be about four months now, so it's one of the larger features we've we've embarked on. But it, it's a visual email builder. Oh, nice! What's that involved? A lot of stuff. You know, you can imagine not only the the front end, which is going to be, you know, obviously a lot of dynamic stuff, a lot of JavaScript and pointing and clicking and moving things around a screen, but then taking something that is essentially JSON and translating it into table-based email rendered HTML is a challenge. And we found some, you know, I'll say some trade secret workarounds. And we found, we really done a lot of research and I think have, have done a, a good job with it. But what, what I've heard from folks who have built visual email builders is building the visual portion of it is one project and it'll take six months or nine months or, you know, depending on how, you know, how many people you have on it and how good they are. And then just doing the table-based rendering and getting all of that to work and work in all the clients is a whole separate project. And it can take as long as building the actual visual builder. And this is why a lot of upstart uh, ESPs don't build them because the time investment is so extensive. So when you say rendering this stuff in the in the clients, like I, I understand what you mean by the differences between them, but like when you kind of going back to the visual email builder, like what advantages does that have over what Drip does now? Right. So today, Drip just has a, a nice little WYSIWYG text editor. And it's still, see, I'm still going to use that. Like, I never use visual email builders because I like the personal kind of interaction, or, or it just feels more like you're getting a plain text email when you send using our standard plain text template. And this is how I've always recommended doing it. And I, I believe that conversion rates are, are higher when you do that. However, there are a few industries where they've done tests. So they've done tests across many 
many industries in terms of a, a visual email with a lot of images and table-based layout, two columns and this and that versus just something that kind of looks like a plain text email, much like, you know, we send out to our microconf list or I send out to my, my blog, Software by Rob list. They tend to be more personal, right? And it's from Rob Walling, the founder, and it looks like he's actually typing it to you. But there are a few industries and e-commerce is one and travel is another where having like these more exotic layouts and emails can and will convert better. And so since, you know, we do have a large e-commerce contingent and since we, you know, we've been focusing on commerce-based businesses, people who are selling things, we have found it time to to break ground on uh, on a visual builder. So it allows you to do the, you know, the, the things where you see the fancy, neat template and you can just insert your images and have that layout. So it's not something I'm going to recommend for everybody, but there are instances in which it converts better. Got it. Kind of like if you go over to MailChimp, for example, they've got like 30 or 50 different templates you can choose from. Okay. Exactly. That makes sense. That makes sense. Right. And so, you know, we may we won't have thirty to fifty templates to start with, but obviously that's a that's a direction that you'll wind up going. And it's become I mean, it's become table stakes in again in certain industries. If you're doing e-commerce and you're working with companies using, let's say, a platform like Shopify or Big Commerce or WooCommerce, or if they have their own custom solution for e-commerce, they tend to want to send emails with a lot of images in and not just a straight top to bottom flow, right? Where it's image text, image text. You want to have things that that just look nicer than that. Yeah, the things that come to mind for that are things like you know Amazon or New Egg or ThinkGeek. All those like it's exactly the same thing. I, I totally get what you're what you're saying where that's going. It totally makes sense. Yep. And so, and the reason I'm excited about it is because I feel like we went you know much like we did with workflows, like we went back to kind of first principles and said, what did everyone else do wrong? Like what do we hate about builders and how can we do this differently? And so it isn't just look at what everyone did and copy the best features. It's like we're doing things that are different than anyone else. And there are obviously going to be commonalities. I mean there's you know there's stuff on the left that is your your text and your image block and your your divider and whatever and then there's the email on the right. You know, I mean that that's kind of common stuff, but there are certain paradigms that we use that I think are are superior and and going to make a, for a better user experience. And so the team has been working hard on it. And every time I see a demo, I'm like, man, this is super cool. Actually, you know, I kind of want to use this, even though I don't really, like I said, I don't use other visual builders as a rule when I'm writing my emails because I like, I've always liked the more plain text feel. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's dive right into the uh, episode. I know you've got a couple of questions outlined here. Let's get started on those. For sure. So our first one is a voicemail, and it's about how to balance feature development and marketing, specifically for an iOS app. But let's let's hear the question, and we can uh, figure out what form we want to answer it. Hi, Mike and Rob. This is Stephen Johnson with Topo Maps Plus, an iOS and Mac app for hikers. My website is GlacierPeakStudios.com. I had a question about prioritizing user feedback. I've been getting a lot of feedback about my app on the Apple Watch, and it's, I feel like I'm missing out on some opportunities as well as missing out on just um, keeping up with where the market's going. However, right now I've really been prioritizing a lot of marketing efforts, working on conversion rates, lowering churn, um, increasing LTV, some other business partnerships with business development. And Rob, I know in your book you talk a lot about how you know having more marketing always beats out features, and I completely agree with that. I'm just trying to figure out how do I kind of balance these two you know, priorities and, and knowing how to balance user requests that come in, especially ones that feel like the market's making some changes and I feel like 
am I missing out on something? Maybe I am and maybe I'm not, but I know that there's opportunities that I'm not capturing with my marketing. I know there's there's conversion opportunities as well as, as some churn things I need to work on. So just curious about your thoughts on that. Thanks for the show. Love what you guys do. Thanks. I think this is a, an interesting question, mainly because it's a it's an iOS and Mac app, but there's also the recurring annual subscription component to it. So that's uh, I think the prices here range from there is a free plan, but then they range from twenty dollars a year up to eighty dollars a year, which is around what five to eight dollars a month, something along those lines. And I think that the challenge here, I think, is identifying why that churn happens. Is it is it legitimately because people are churning out and they're no longer like using it? Or is it just they find that the the app doesn't help them nearly as much as they thought it would? I think it'd be easy to assume that, oh, you should be doing this or you should be implementing that feature. But I think I might dive a little bit more into the churn itself and start asking a lot more detailed questions about why it is that people aren't using it. And my concern slash fear here would be that what you're offering people is conceptually what they want, but either the implementation itself is not really what they're looking for, or it doesn't really quite match up with what the value proposition they were sold on is. And it could turn out to be that, you know, somebody tries one app and they think that it's going to work. And once they get out in the field and they're using it, it sort of works or does most of what they want, but it's not quite enough. And so they decide to switch and use something else. So maybe look at your performance metrics or your you know usability metrics to see like are people actually using it after three or four months in, or is it that they've paid for it and it was a low enough price point that they said, well, you know, I paid fifty dollars for this and it's not a big deal, so I'll just try this other thing over here for another fifty dollars. And as I said, the the fear slash concern that I would have is that it's something that people use and it may just not be able to deliver on the promise. And it's not to say that you can ever deliver on that promise. And that's the fear that I have is like, is it even possible to do what it is that they really want. And I don't know the answer to that. You have to ask people to find out. But, you know, as you said, the other component is like, do you invest more on the marketing side and try and ramp it up? Or do you drill in and start trying to fix those things and add more features? And I think the first place to start is to find out why people are churning out and what the fundamental issue is there. And from there, look back and say, well, is it important enough for you to fix? And the reason I say that is because there's there's a question of roadmap and what is most important to you. Not roadmap, runway is more it than anything else. Like, are you able to make ends meet with the app the way it is? Or are you like chewing through runway and sort of losing money on it as you're going along? And in that case, you kind of need to lean more towards scaling things up and then fixing things versus being able to make ends meet on a regular basis and you don't have to worry about it as much. So at that point, you can dig in and start fixing things in the app. That's probably the place that I would start. Rob, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is the age-old question. I think it's a really good one to think about. I think in general, as developers, we think features are the answer. And in general, they are not. Not to say all, you know, at all times, because in certain markets and certain niches, it really, it, it really will make a big difference. Like drip launching workflows was game changing for us. It doubled our month over month growth. So it can happen. But so many of the little features that are constantly being requested. I mean, if you're if you have thousands of users, you're going to get 50 or 100 feature requests a month, and most of them you need to not build. Not only to keep the product simple enough that it doesn't become bloated, but because you just don't have the time to build them all. So, you know, he's the the caller is so much closer to his business than we are. So it's hard for me to make a recommendation to him. But my recommendation in general would be steer away from the mindset that I, you know, I just need this, this one more feature to do this thing. Unless 
everyone's requesting it. You know, there comes a certain point where 10% of your feature requests are for the exact same feature. And at that point, that's when we like break down, you know, in the early days. I mean, we, we build a lot more now, right? We have a team of 18 developers or whatever. But in the early days when we were super cash and resource strapped, it was pretty much no by default. And yes, to these highly focused things that we knew were going to move the needle. And so that's how that's how I balance it. I think that the caller's approach to doing joint ventures and focusing on marketing is genius. And that's exactly what I would be doing because the more marketing you do, assuming it's effective, the more revenue you get. And that revenue will allow you to then hire, you know, a contractor in essence, or perhaps a first-time employee, however you want to work it, but hire a developer that you can supervise because that will then well, I should take one step back. The first person I would hire is, is a part-time VA to answer, to handle all your support, if you're still handling that, because that'll free up. Then start thinking about hiring someone to, to write the code. And this is the part that developers, you know, always, always struggle with, because no one, quote-unquote, is going to write the code as well as I do. However, if you can free up, you know, 12 to 30 hours of your time in a week that and features are still moving forward and you have some budget to pay someone, it can be game changing for your business and it frees you up to focus on really moving the needle. And so I think marketing in the early days is such a big deal because you need to get the revenue to allow yourself to start stepping away from certain roles that while you may enjoy doing them are probably in the early days are less effective and won't move the needle as much. So thanks for the question. I uh, hope that was helpful. Our next question is about overcoming hesitations about partnerships to move the business forward. Hi, Mike and Rob. This is Joshua from Perspective Labs. And first, thanks so much for this podcast. Every episode is invaluable. My question is this, how do I overcome my hesitancy of partnering with someone to move the business forward? So for context, I run a B2B SaaS company that offers monthly subs in the range of 100 to 350 a month, and we've plateaued at about $2,500 in MRR. I co-founded the business with an awesome colleague, but just due to life circumstances, he really isn't able to participate materially in the business anymore. And our product is solid at this point, but I know we need to move the needle in sales and marketing in a big way, and try as I might, I just can't seem to crack that nut. So I know that finding the right person to bring on board would probably do wonders and turn this into a viable business, but I'm a do-it-yourselfer. And I just have trouble, one, convincing myself that I ought to do this, and two, coming up with a viable way to achieve it. Any advice for uh, effectively a solopreneur who doesn't want to be stuck in a half business for forever? Thanks so much for the both of you. Oh, and everyone, go and leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Bye. And Joshua was kind enough to also send us an email with a bit more background. And he said the main product outreach is at perspexalabs.com. We've got a core group of customers and service businesses like pest control and electricity, and we'll soon be getting into health care providers. Because revenue is only about 2500 a month with margins of around 70%, it's not enough yet to pay salaries. So I'm guessing that bringing someone on board would probably need to be an equity arrangement, which I'd be fine with. With regards to my own efforts to sales and marketing, I've gone through the traction book and tried several different approaches, including online ads, cold calls, cold email outreach, and attended a very targeted trade show that really hasn't generated fruit as nearly all of our current customers are referrals from other customers. Unmentioned in my question, but also related issue, should I let my current co-founder remain in the business? I'd really like him to be here if we can get into healthcare because of his connections, but I know this isn't a first priority anymore. What do you think, Mike? It's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, I think there's you can almost divide this into two entirely different things, one of which is what to do about the co-founder, and then the other is how do you move the business forward when you've got 2500 a month and not enough money to do a lot. 
and you've also got obviously got the the co-founder on board uh, and i don't know what the relationship there is he didn't specifically call that out it sounds like it's still like it's totally amicable and he'd like to keep him on if they move into healthcare but not if they don't and you don't know if they've vested so the first thing is that you should have done four year vesting probably so that your co-founder wouldn't own you know the entire percentage that they had you know, because if they decide to leave, that will go back into the pool to get the next person. Mm-hmm. I think with regards to what to do about the co-founder, that's probably the, the first thing to do. And, you know, it's it sounds like you want to keep him on. But the question is, how much is he going to be able to contribute? And as Rob said, like with the, the vesting schedule, maybe he owns 25 percent because he stuck around a year or 50 percent because he stuck around for two years. That seems to me like the first thing to look at and try and figure out. And if he has to walk away because he's just not involved, that doesn't mean that he still doesn't own, you know, a certain percentage of the business anymore and can't contribute in an advisory capacity or something along those lines. So that's something I think you have to work out with your co-founder and sit down and have an honest conversation about what him stepping away from the business really mean for the business and for the relationship between you guys. And then once you've kind of figured that out, the, the next question to tackle is what do you do about the business itself? And I think you're in a, you know, you didn't specify like what your own personal situation is or whether you're not, you're taking money from the business and living off of it. But with 2,500 a month, it sounds to me like because you're a do-it-yourselfer that it might be a viable strategy to go out and find a, a business coach who can walk you through a bunch of different things. And that does a couple of things. One is it avoids handing equity over to somebody else. And two, it still allows you to do those things yourself. And you get that personalized assistance from somebody else and a sounding board from somebody who's kind of vested in the business because you are paying them to give you ideas and take a hard look at what it is that you're doing and how effective those things are. But you're still doing those things yourself and you still don't necessarily hand over control to you know a third party or a, a co-founder or another partner in the business and avoid some of those other issues that maybe you're struggling with right now. And I don't think that it's wise to introduce too many changes all at once. And that could be, I would say, a nice bridge scenario where you are involving somebody else, but you're not handing over the reins to somebody else in a co-founder capacity while you're kind of having your current co-founder step away from the business a little bit. So that's probably where I'd start looking and see if that makes sense to you. Yeah, I think you're right. There are two separate issues here. It's the existing co-founder and then pulling on a new partner. I think given that the business, you have de-risked the business a small amount, that bringing on a new partner, you could obviously give equity without giving an enormous amount. You know, it wouldn't need to be a third of the equity or something. It depends on your aspirations and, and I think where the business is headed and who you can find. But you know, I'm thinking in the 10 to 20% range, given where you are. And it could even be, you know, if you, so if you were going to go raise funding and you were going to go try to find like a COO or something or a, a CTO, they'd get 5%, right? But you're in a little bit different situation because you're not going to get, it doesn't sound like you're going to get so big so fast that that's going to be warranted. So uh, as a result, you have to bump that equity up 10 to 10 or 15% or whatever. But at this point, it's not, it, in my opinion, it wouldn't just be an, an even, even split. I think the hard part is finding that person and vetting them. And it's like a marriage, right? Because you guys are going to have shared ownership of things and, and breaking that up later is can be like a divorce. And so I think getting over your hesitations is one thing, but I think the harder thing is to find someone who is kind of good enough, you know, or who's going to work with your style, who's willing to be in the trenches with you, who, you know, I think really wants to stick around and is able to work because it it sounds like this is going to be nights and weekends. There's so many people are not cut out for that in general. Like most people just think they want to do it. And then a month in, 
or two months in, they just, they kind of flake out or they just decide not to do it. So I think finding someone who meets all those criteria is really hard, but I think if you can, then what, you know, what I would look at doing is definitely have kind of a trial period, maybe 90 days just to see how things feel. I would definitely have four-year vesting on that with a one-year cliff, meaning they don't get any shares until they've been around for a year. And I think, I mean, that's kind of how I would approach it. And I would look I would look to be meeting people in person. So I would be going to the microconfs and the business of software and, and these conferences where there are folks who, who could potentially be, be in that pool for you. Separately, regarding your current co-founder, I think you just need to make the choice sooner rather than later whether to go into healthcare. And if you're going to go into it and you want to keep, you know, he, he wants to stay around, you want to keep him around, that's great. And if you're not, then I think the decision is made there. So I, I know it's not always that that crystal clear, but it does from, you know, given the information you've provided seem like those, that's perhaps how I would, uh, perhaps how I'd proceed. So thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is about technical debt. And Mike, does technical debt really come back to bite you? Oh yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> All right. No question on that. All right. The subject line of the email is actually, have technical debt decisions been easy to pay down later or did they really come back to bite you? And he says, love the show. Listen for the past year. Really love the practical advice. I'm looking for your technical perspective about what matters in the early days of getting a site running while keeping customers happy with mission critical data, building a data heavy B2B SaaS startups. The front end is in Angular. The back end is in Rails. I'm an intermediate self-taught developer, so new things I haven't done before can sometimes take a week or two to figure out. I'm making early technical debt trade-offs. Hosting, using Heroku versus AWS, database, Postgres versus Aurora, and other miscellaneous things relating to data structures. I'm not looking for technical help, but the question is more geared to your experience of how much this stuff matters up front and really needs to be solved to get it functional versus it's not too hard to change it later and theoretically important, but won't kill you. So pick the simpler thing, even if you know you'll need it to change it after launch. So am I wasting a lot of time by taking the shortcut now and having to pull the app apart later to move it around when I have real customers using it in production? Well, Mike, I feel like we have a lot. This, this is not going to be as long as GDPR, I promise, but I feel like we have a lot to say on this. So go, just, just start rolling with this. What do you think? You know, do we have like a, you know, a, a beeps queued up immediately for all the profanity that's about to be dropped on this? Yeah, <laughs> technical debt. It's a Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I I think looking back on this particular piece of it, a lot of the some of the things that he had brought up, things like hosting and the database selection and the data structures that you're using on the back end, some of those can be really hard to change later on, virtually impossible. I mean, in some cases, you're looking at a complete rewrite. So you at least have to have enough technical knowledge to make those decisions in a way that is not going to completely kill the app later on or force you to do a, an absolute rewrite from the ground up. That said, I do know people who have done complete rewrites after they've gotten to a point where they've gotten customers on board and it basically delays things. I mean, you may have to take three, six, nine months of accepting the fact that you're just not going to make any progress on the features in order to fix that, like those fundamental decisions that were busted. And then there's kind of the second level, which is where you're trying to make decisions about, you know, how do you structure the data or how do you create the database in such a way that it makes it easy to do certain queries or provide solid error handling or error returns to the like API, for example. And I think in those cases, you can mitigate them to some extent by using dependency injection and creating these interfaces that kind of sit in front of it. And if you need to rewrite one, 
than you can. And you're almost swapping out an entire layer of the application for another in a very specific way. So I'll give an example with Bluetick, like the backend storage system for storing emails has been rewritten four times. And it's because at first it was like, let's just get something working. And then it was trying to optimize for local storage. And then it was the next level was things are not working in local storage because there's so much data coming in at all times. Like I just can't scale that much and on one machine. And then I kind of moved everything into the cloud and into AWS or not AWS into Azure tables and NoSQL storage. And then the fourth rewrite was essentially making that more scalable and optimized. And at each level along the way, like there was some level of rewrite, but because it was essentially being able to flip a switch and say, instead of using this data set of data structures, use this other, you can do those on a per user basis or on like small sub segments of the users and not affect others. So I would definitely do some research on dependency injection. The other nice byproduct of that is that it helps with writing unit tests to be able to make sure that those things that are working from one version of your you know rewrite to the next in that particular component or module. Beyond that, I mean, there's there's always going to be things that you run into where you think that one way is a good way to po- solve the technical challenge, and you turn around and find that it just wasn't. I mean, you get down into the weeds sometimes, and you realize that you made a really, really big mistake. And the only way to, to resolve that at that point is to rewrite it. And there's nothing you can do at that point. The, the only way to have mitigated those types of problems is to have run into them and then realized after the fact that it was a mistake. And it's really hard to generalize from one application or problem space to the next and say like, oh, you you should never do it this way or you should always do it this way. Because like those things don't apply. Like there's each problem space has its own unique way of storing data or things that need to be surfaced to the user. And you don't always know what those are until afterwards. And you know, sometimes you just make the best decision that you have and you find out later that it was wrong and there's nothing you can do. Yeah. I would just say in general, technical debt is underrated, I think, in the startup space. Meaning I think people think that it's not a big deal and it's a way bigger deal than most people do. Because if you aren't technical, it's hard to understand why you can't just quickly rewrite a piece or quickly change something, you know, change a decision you made later. But it really is akin, I mean, these metaphors don't always work, but it's akin to building a building and then needing to go back and replace the, the concrete foundation because you poured it incorrectly. You literally have to jack the building up and it's just painstaking and agonizing to replace that. And that's what, what code is, right? It's you're, you're building things on top of each other. I think of it like a four by four matrix where, you know, there's, there's basically two binary things, right? One is I know that this is a shortcut and I'm going to take it anyways, versus I don't know this is a shortcut. Like I accidentally introduced technical debt. And I think that's the, that's the switch you were talking about. Then I think there are, the other one is it's easy to undo later, versus it's a complete fiasco to undo later. So you can imagine that that four by four matrix, I won't go through you know, all of those matching up, but obviously the ones that you, any decision you make on purpose to introduce technical debt, you need to explore and thought experiment, like how hard is this to undo later? And if it's hard, then don't do it. You know, there was a lot of decisions, there were a lot of decisions Derek and I made in the early days that were very slow. They caused drip development to be very slow in the early days. And it was pretty agonizing when we were bleeding cash and we couldn't get the features out the door to keep people from churning because it was a very specific 
you know, kind of feature set that people wanted. And it was taking us months to build them. And it was because Derek wanted to build them very carefully with extensive unit tests and he wanted to do it right. And he had to refactor the database twice in the first year of the app because the app went from a very simple thing to a very complicated thing. And it was agonizing, but it was the right decision because now Drip would, it would be catastrophic right now. We would probably have to have rewritten major parts of Drip and it would have, I don't know if it would have impacted the acquisition or if it just would have been post-acquisition or what it would have been, but it would have been, it would have been really hard. And he, between he and I, we, we figured out a good sense of what was going to be hard to change later. Things that are easier to change later, like you said, where you can just build an interface and then swap it out later. Obviously, those are ones that you can, you know, maybe take shortcuts on. But I think, you know, some people take shortcuts on like not writing unit tests. Some people make code quality shortcuts where they just start hacking things together and later on everything's buggy because you took a shortcut and you didn't build it right, right the first place. So in general, I have seen, I mean, geez, I've seen no less than I'll say half a dozen and maybe closer to a dozen companies get to the point where they're between 10 and 50 K MRR, they're growing fast and they have to rewrite their entire code base. And I've seen some that have done it more than once. And it is so painful to spend six months standing still while your competition gains on you because you took shortcuts in the early days and now you're just kind of hanging out, you know, waiting, waiting to build more features until your code base can be completely rewritten. So I would say proceed with caution. Obviously, you're always going to have some level of technical debt, but be very deliberate about those choices because I think it's it's easy to be in such a hurry to get to the point where where you have more more revenue and there this is a, certainly a trade-off because in the early early days when you're just trying to get to five or 10k revenue yeah you are gonna have to make some trade-offs but try to try to take shortcuts on things that are easy to change later that's that's how I think about it I think one of the biggest places to make that trade-off is that when you're looking at unit tests, I mean, you, I'm not saying you write unit tests for everything because I certainly don't think that that has a ton of value for a startup, but I do think that there is value in having like a, a continuous integration server of some kind or a build system put in place so that later on you don't have to figure out, okay, well, how am I going to deploy my app? I mean, you want that to be like a, a systematic thing where you can literally just click a button and it runs through everything and is able to deploy the app. But with that, it comes at least some level of unit tests or a mechanism for running those. And even if you don't write a ton of unit tests, as bugs come in, you should be adding those unit tests to make sure that if a bug comes in and it breaks something, that you add a unit test in there so that later on, as you're making other changes, it doesn't break that again. And like I said, I don't think you should write unit tests for everything, but I do think that as those bugs come in, you should be writing them to make sure that once you've fixed a particular problem, that you don't have to refix it three, four, five, ten different times moving forward because it just keeps coming up. So thanks for the question. I hope that was hopeful. Next question is from J. Pablo Fernandez, and he says, I just finished going through all my newsletter subscribers, and I noticed there are a few industries that are well represented, such as education, health, IT, and government. When it comes to my product, they all use it in the same way, and the feature set they need is pretty much the same. So I wouldn't say they are verticals in the SaaS way of thinking. I can sell to all of them or I can focus on one industry. Are there any advantages to either approach? 
I think this is a tough question just because you don't, as you said, you, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner and make people think that you don't serve their industry. So I think what I would do in this case is focus on the specific problem that you solve and then maybe have different case studies for each of those industries and even segment your list a little bit so that when you talk to them, when you're sending out newsletters or you're sending out articles to them, maybe you only send an article that highlights a case study for, I don't know, the, the electric and gas industry to those people who are subscribers that fit into that bucket. It seems to me like that would probably be an appropriate way to go. But at the same time, there's value to be had for saying, hey, this also works in other industries because there is going to be some crossover between them. And let's say that if you have a case study on, I don't know, like the nuclear power plant industry, if it's safe enough for them to use for your application, then whatever other industry they happen to be in, they would probably translate that and say, oh, well, if these guys are using it, then surely it's past muster and I could use it as well. So I would think about it in terms of just trying to make sure that you're covering enough of each of them, but not focusing so hard on any of them that it makes people think that, oh, this is not for me. I think I might try to run an experiment. He has this list and he has these four sectors, four verticals. And I would I would consider trying to do basically like exploratory calls. I don't know if you want to call it customer development or even just sales calls if the product's already there across all of them. And figure out that you want to validate your assumption that they use it in the same way with the same feature set. Because I find that a little bit hard to believe, you know, just having run the apps that I've run, different industries tend to want slightly different feature sets and have a slightly, just enough, it's subtle, but by the time you really get in and they start using it, it becomes a pain in the butt to have four different industries all wanting something just slightly, oh, just tweak this one thing. Oh, can I just have a setting to do this? Well, we have a permission and a reporting thing. Well, we have to be HIPAA compliant. You know, this, it's just enough that there will be a difference, I, I guess, is what, what I'm, I'm guessing. And so if you have the time to do this up front and just have a bunch of phone calls with these folks and try to do the demos and try to figure out, is it truly going to be something that, that they all can use, then that's that's fine. But I do think you're going to find differences in payment terms in, like you said, sales cycle, because government's going to take forever to, to come through. So maybe in your early days, since you're trying to get ahead of, you know, funding running out or whatever, you go after the ones that close quickest, which I don't know if that'd be IT. Education sure seems like it's going to take a long time too. So focus on the one that, you know, that are going to close the quickest and get the early value in order to, to keep you around long enough to focus on, on all four. But I would try to answer that question. There's still a question in my mind of, is the product actually going to serve all four. If that's the case, and you can work your entire list and work all four of them at once and try to get as many customers paying you on day one, then that's that's what I would do. Like right now, you're just trying to get revenue and see how people use the app. And if they're going to get value out of the app and they're across four different industries, then you're going to learn more about all four. And maybe later you decide to focus down on one industry. I do think that there are some advantages focusing on one industry in terms of how your marketing can really speak to people. So you're going to close more deals, probably how your kind of sales conversation can focus on them, how your feature set can focus and how word of mouth will be such a big component of it, right? Assuming that people in your industry hang out at conferences or hang out online, word of mouth, if you kind of just become the de facto in an industry, in, in a vertical, then you can land and expand where it's like, all right, we are the go-to for this, you know, this task in the IT space. Now we're going to start adding on these other verticals. That's the other way to approach it, right? It's just to pick one based on your information so far, your best guess. And then later on a year or two down the line, once you kind of own a big chunk of this, yeah, expand into 
to the others. But I feel like you don't have enough information to do either approach right now. And I would try to close as many deals as I could, see if they actually will all use it, and then try to make the decision once you have a little more information. And for our final question of the day, we have a question from Ed Freyfogel. He was a MicroConf Europe speaker this year. He says, hey guys, long-time listener, first-time asker. One target audience of my SaaS service is academic researchers. They are not the best customers as typically they are low budget and they only need the service for a project or a semester. Nevertheless, they are a niche that seems to like my service. Often they ask for academic discounts. My pricing is already very affordable and I offer a discount for annual purchases. Still, I can't help but wonder if I might be able to grow this niche by offering an academic discount. Alternatively, I have also thought about selling to universities and offering them a bulk rate, but so far have always been busy with other things so haven't acted on this idea. I'm wondering if you guys have any advice on academic discounts in general, how to ensure they are not abused by other customers and selling to universities. Thanks for the great show. I learn a lot. Yeah, this I, I like. I mean, this is a tough question. I like I like the fact that he's thinking pretty strategically about it. I think that if you haven't had the time to kind of try to sell the universities and offer them a bulk rate, it's probably if you haven't made the time, it's probably not that important. I mean, that's what I found with businesses, right? It's like it, you go to where the kind of the money's coming in and, and your biggest fires are, and. I'm guessing that unless you were to you know hire someone to handle that, that it's not going to make it to the top of your to-do list anytime soon. So I would tend to think I tend to think about discounts in two ways, right? There's academic, and then there's nonprofit discounts. And so I don't know if you have a nonprofit discount as well. That's something that I would consider modeling it after. And there you you know you just ask for proof of their nonprofit status, which can totally be abused. But it's you know for every we did this I think with Donate Invoice we had a nonprofit one and. It was maybe one in 20, one in 30 who asked for it and, and showed us docs. It seemed a little bit like, oh, you, you signed up with this just to get the discount. In terms of, of academic stuff, I it depends on what volume you have coming in. It's like if it really is an edge case and it's one in 50 people ask for it, you could always have an unpublished academic discount and, and you just need to get proof from them. I don't know if it's a student ID or if it's a professor ID or you know what it is, but it's got to be a process. It's fairly lightweight. I personally don't see a huge drawback to doing it. I'm curious, you know, when people email and ask for academic discounts and you say no, how many sales do you think you lose? And is it worth even doing any of this effort to get those sales? So your pricing is already, you know, reasonable. If you offered another 20, 30, 40% off for, for academic discounts, and that's probably the range I would think in, although I haven't done any research about this, but mentally that I would be in that range. Is that worth it if you have to go through validation of some type of ID? And so, I, I don't know, there's some trade-offs here. I would probably, if the volume is high enough that you're asking this question, I would probably just do an experiment where the next time I got an email about it, I would say, yes, we have a 25% discount, but you have to prove you're, you know, you're a student or your faculty and see where it goes from there and handle it as a one-off to start. And then, you know, I, I don't know if Ed has support people or not, but if you instruct them to do that and then tally up in a Google spreadsheet how often it gets asked and which sales come through, you can start getting at least a little bit of data about it. So that's those are my initial thoughts without a ton of experience. You know, to back that up, it's more of the gut feel. I mean, so much of entrepreneurship is making it up as you as you go along, right? It's just figuring out what's, what's the priority and, and making the best judgment call based on the information you have. So what do you think? Mike, you have other thoughts? 
Well, I've, I've looked at academic discounts in the past. And if you, I mean, you just do a quick search for academic discounts for software and you'll find that they can be upwards of like 85%, which is extremely high, especially for something like a SaaS. I mean, I don't even know if the discounts that you're offering, like is the money that you're getting even enough to offset the cost of you actually doing business with that person? And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think you need to figure out what that is. Yeah. And I wouldn't make the, I know that like Microsoft and Adobe and those guys discount because they're they're pirated so much. Often students who don't have the money and they do these huge discounts. But when you're a SaaS app and and you're, especially when you're bootstrapped like this and cash is so important, there's no chance I would offer a discount that large. Yeah. I mean, I I think that part of the reason that those types of companies offer discounts that high is one, like it's downloadable software, so they don't have to worry about their own costs. And two, they're really just trying to make sure that there is some form of legitimacy for the software that you're using and giving that high of a discount helps them to get market penetration so that, you know, Microsoft has like, you know, 90% market penetration on the desktop for Office and Windows. So I, I agree, I wouldn't go that high, but it's not to say that you couldn't have a discount for students versus a discount for like academic researchers slash the university itself. Because if somebody's using it for a class, then they're probably not going to be able to pay nearly as much as the person who's doing it for the university and offering it on behalf of the class itself. So I might think about that, but I I do agree that it's, you know, with Rob, that you probably want to go through and run some, at least some tests to find out like what is it that people are using it for. And something else to consider is that if somebody is purchasing it on behalf of the classroom because they're teaching it, what's the value of having those people in the class know about your product and then they leave and graduate and go out and do things in the workforce and having them know, hey, I can come over to, to opencagedata.com and buy this stuff off the shelf. And we used it in our in our classroom. So it has a lot of legitimacy. There's probably some value in that. I don't know what that level is because, I mean, if you go through like an engineering degree, chances are good you probably used you know, AutoCAD someplace along the way. So when you get out into the to industry, like you're first thought is, oh, I need to create some 3D models of something. Where's the copy of AutoCAD? And you obviously, like there's a student discount that you can get, but once you get out into the real world, your company has to pay for it. So having those people go to their bosses and say, hey, I use this data over here from opencagedata.com. Like we should buy a license for that. There's value there. I don't know what that is, but I, I definitely think that there's some value there. So I would look into it. I don't know how much time and effort I would spend on it because the return on that is probably going to be a while. It's going to be a couple of years. Yeah, those are good points. I like your idea of not making an academic discount, but making it a student discount, right? That's It's an interesting thing because students really don't have the money, whereas if, if a university is buying it for a class, I mean, they, they do have some budget, so perhaps. And, and his prices are, he's right, his prices are reasonable, like a university should be able to, to afford it, so... Well, even with like a student, though, like a student could probably get away with a free trial or even like the extra small plan that they have there for like a, a class or a project or something like that. But a university, if it's for a class and they're buying it on behalf of the students for a class, offer them a 30% discount. And if you're a student and you just want to use it yourself, maybe it's a 60% discount. I don't know. But if you separate them, I think that there's a way of kind of targeting those people in that way that says, oh, well, we give students, individual students, 60%. And for universities, we give them a 30%. And it shows that you're doing both. It shows you're helping out on both sides. Yeah. And it's just, it's a question of whether or not the volume of, of kind of incoming requests warrant spending the time to figure all this out. Or if the answer is no, we just, we have reasonable prices and we aren't able to, to support any of this, you know, because you don't have the bandwidth. It's less about money and it's more about, I'm a bootstrap startup with 
you know, not a lot of time and just having another yet another program to maintain. And then we have to get a fax of your ID or an email with a screenshot and then check it off that it's approved. And then, move, you know, it's just one more process that you have to you have to weigh if that's going to be worth it for, you know, in order to make another few discounted sales. Well, thanks for the question, Ed. I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it under our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherustofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupstherustofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.